Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Andrew Mitchell has served many of the UK's most established institutions, from public school to the army, to the City of London, Parliament, the Whip's Office and the Cabinet. He has an insider's eye on what makes the country tick. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Mitchell. His new book, Beyond the Fringe, refers not only to his distinctive hairstyle, but also his insider view of Britain. We'll be exploring his journey into politics, life in the Whip's office and the cabinet, and where he sees Tory politics going next. Andrew, welcome to the podcast and welcome to the FT's home at Bracken House. It's the first time I've been in the studio for a while. It might be the last for a bit of a while with the new working from home order. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, I very much enjoyed your book. It's one of the funniest political memoirs I've read in some time. And I just want to begin at the, at the start here, that obviously you had a very prosperous middle-class background and you went to public school, to prep school, you went to Ashdown House, to rugby, before serving in the army and also later in the City of London. Before we look at Westminster life, tell us a bit about what that was like and did you ever feel like you were just becoming subsumed as part of the British establishment? No, I wouldn't. I mean, I might have felt that I was a bit, you know, under the bedclothes, but I wouldn't have described myself as a, as a lackey in those days. The, the subtitle, Tales from a Reformed Establishment Lackey, does sort of pay tribute to the fact that I've had the good fortune to have a very privileged life. I've uh, been a member of all these different establishments and institutions, many of which, of course, have changed out of all recognition. I mean, the last time I was in this building, it was completely different. There was a printing press where we are now sitting. And of course, I worked for many years for Lazard, which, like the FT, was owned by the Pearson Group. So, you know, this building is quite a good analogy, actually, because it's in its guts, its, its facade is exactly the same as it always was, but its guts are completely different. And I think that's true of many establishment institutions. I mean, the prep school, which I attended, which I write about in the early chapters of the book, humorously, but with care, because, of course, you know, th- those were the, the institutions that the British middle classes paid huge amounts of money to send their children away to be abused. I then moved to the army, which has probably changed less, actually, than any of the other establishment institutions I, I mentioned. I mean, you know, the, the respect we should all hold for the men and women who compose our armed forces and put themselves in harmed way on our behalf on numerous occasions should be and is, I think, enormous. But then, of course, I went into the city, which has changed as well. Well, I was going to ask you about that because you worked for Lazard, the investment bank in the 1980s, which was obviously during this period when the city of London had the Big Bang and went very much from a sort of traditional gentleman's club where you were probably surrounded by many of the people you went to school with and had maybe served in the army with to a much more meritocratic and maybe more middle class sort of existence there. How did you see that unfurling during your time at Lazard? Well, that's exactly what happened. You know, it was a gentleman's club and it was 
gentleman, and it was English rather than British as well, in those days before Big Bang. And then Mrs. Thatcher and Cecil Parkinson opened it up and competition came in. And of course, in those days, actually, the city didn't make very much money. So it was very easy for the Americans to buy a lot of these city institutions and uh, so forth. And actually, my experience was even more poignant and in the way you described it, because in those days, Lazard had three big motherships. There were the preppy Wall Street American bank, Lazard. There was uh, Lazard in Paris, which was full of Haute Banquier from France. And then there was London, which was principally sort of Oxbridge-educated public schoolboys. And again, it was boys. So that experience of meeting the Americans, who then came in and sort of made a huge impact in London, was extraordinary. I mean, one bank, I think it might have been Bear Stearns, which came in as a result of Big Bang and had a huge trading area. Above the trading area was a big sign which said, let's make nothing but money. You know, it was an extraordinary change in culture. And in, in when I joined the city, you didn't talk about money. Indeed, it was a sackable offence at Lazard's to tell anyone what you were paid. And it's funny because I remember listening to Nigel Farage, who worked in the London Metals Exchange at a similar period there. Now, not surprisingly, he decries the end of that era where people would go and have five pints at lunchtime and then make some trades when they were maybe not of sound mind. When you look at how the city changed in that period, will you say it was for the better? Oh, yes, of course. Although I think, you know, my word is my bond prevailed to a substantial extent then. Although, of course, you know, insider dealing was not illegal at that point. So so there's been a cultural change there. And the regulation, of course, is, is far more intense. I mean, a lot of the regulation when I joined the city was done by the governor of the Bank of England's eyebrows. But it was extraordinary. I mean, I remember going to my first lunch at a major joint stock bank, where you had sherry beforehand, white wine with the first course, red wine with the second course, a sauterne or sweet wine with the pudding followed by brandy and port, and how anyone did any work at all in those days. And actually, Lazard was the first major city house to stop all drinking at lunchtime. And if you came into lunch at Lazard, you would be offered various different types of bottled water. That's very symbolic of the 80s, I think, and um, your body as a temple and that kind of atmosphere that prevailed. Now, you obviously then entered Parliament in 1987. When did you first know you wanted to stand to go into Westminster? Well, when I left university, I thought I should get a proper job. And indeed, I was turned down by the family. You were in the Conservative Club at university, is that right? I was, but actually in those days, the Conservative Association at Cambridge, you didn't actually need to be a member of the party to join. And indeed, the Conservative Association, just before my time, took that too far by infiltrating the Labour Club. So the Labour Club had to be closed down when it was dominated by infiltrating Tories. But but, uh, but I was a Conservative there. And when I came down from Cambridge, I was turned down by the family wine business on the ground. I, my palate wasn't good enough to distinguish between different types of wine. Um, and I went into the city at that uh, point. But I went into the city, at least in part, because... I did think I might end up in politics, but I knew I needed to get a proper job beforehand. And actually, the bane of politics is people who are just politicians and who haven't got some outside experience to bring into the House of Commons. The special advisors who then go straight from, you know, sort of working in Westminster to representing a place in Westminster. Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, some of them are absolutely brilliant and there's obviously a huge place for them. But but I think in general, for lesser beings, it's important to bring in some experience 
experience into the House of Commons because it's, it's not really meant to be a college of further education. You're meant to bring something in and not regurgitate what you read in the press. So you first represented the constituency of Gedling, which in Nottinghamshire, which you represented for 10 years, which then went to Labour and actually went back at the 2019 general election there. How's that seat changed? Because that's one of those places that's within that catchment area of so-called Red Wall of working class Tory areas on the outskirts of Nottinghamshire. You know, did you see the defeat coming in 97? And why do you think it's gone back to the Tories so many years later? I did. And, you know, one of my many great failures is losing a seat. The the previous election in 1992 had a majority of 16,000. But in that 1992 election, those who did not want a Tory MP realised that they should vote Labour and not split it between the Lib Dems and Labour. You know, the truth is, Gedling, it was a wonderful constituency to represent. It was sort of Poujardiste, really. It was full of small business people, those who went to work in in Nottingham. And a lot of the big houses which had been lived in by Tory families up against the city walls were moving and changing into multiple occupation buildings, flats and so forth, full of people who were not conservative. And, And I saw that happening during those five years. And then, of course, I was swept out in the Labour landslide when Tony Blair was elected in 1997. And I remember very well actually going to to the most difficult part of, of for the Tories of, of Gedling, Netherfield, and being approached by a family of three. There was granny, mum, and a little one in, the, in a pram. And I'd helped all three of the generations of that family. And I said to those with me, you know, this will be encouraging. And I went up and the, the mum shook my hand and said, um, uh, nice to see you, Mr. Mitchell. And I said, can I rely on your support next week? And uh, she said, I'm afraid not. We're going to vote for Mr. Blair. And I said, well, Mr. Blair's going to win if you vote for me. We, you have me as your member of parliament and, uh, and him in number 10. And she said, I remember her exact word. She said, uh, no, Mr. Mitchell, we think you're a brilliant member of parliament, none better, but we're going to vote for Mr. Blair. His time has come. And, and as I walked away, you know, I'd, got, I'd helped her with her, her housing benefit. I'd helped her mum with her pension. And I got the little one some advice so that they'd get into a nursery. So at that point, I knew the writing was on the wall. Now, before we get to that, obviously, you entered Parliament at, towards the end of Margaret Thatcher's time there. And I think that's when you first got your taste of ministerial office and power when you were a parliamentary private secretary. Tell us about those end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, because that was a very traumatic time for the Conservative Party as you went through, obviously, the poll tax, the defenestration of Mrs Thatcher, the rise of John Major. And in some respects, what we've seen in Tory politics now is in some ways the long tail effect of that, that the party in some ways has never come to terms with the Europe question, the defenestration of Mrs Thatcher. And there's many MPs you speak of still of her in a very hallowed way, even though it's such a long time ago. You're, you're right in that analysis. I mean, she was... She bestrode the world like a colossus when I came in in 1987. And she... You know, when she used to walk past in the corridors, I used to stand to attention and look straight ahead and hope she wouldn't talk to me. She was, you know, she was a goddess. And when she came into the tea room, I remember, which she did a lot, actually, far more than subsequent prime ministers have done. She'd come in and plonk down her huge handbag, which seemed to always have everything in it that you could possibly want. It was a bit like the, like, like the TARDIS. And people would flee the tea room who didn't want her to be fixed with her gimlet eye or that some of the toadies would come in and make sure they were they were there to 
Dare I ask which which category you found yourself in? Uh, although I was certainly prone to toadyism, I was I was also sort of terrified of her. And she'd sit down and ask you what you I think. Thought. You were only sort of thirty one at the time, to be fair. <laughs> but I'd sit down, you know, and be in fear that she would ask you, you know, what you thought of the money supply figures that morning. And and of course, no one would know have read them and would give an inadequate answer. And she'd make it clear she thought it was an inadequate answer. But she was, you know, a quite extraordinary phenomenon who transformed uh, Britain and. And had she said after 10 years at the party conference that she was going to go, the, as Dennis Thatcher advised her to do, the uh, conference would have been knee deep in tears and she would have gone out as one of the great heroes of the 20th century, which I think she is anyway. But the fact is, there was then the decline and fall. And of course, for much of the rest of her life, instead of reflecting on her brilliant successes, she was very jaded by the way she'd been treated. When you look at Mrs Thatcher, do you think there's a general thing of politicians and political leaders wanting to stay on too long when their time is clearly passed? And I think we think back to the years when Theresa May was prime minister and obviously she went through so many embarrassing electoral defeats in Parliament. I remember watching it time and time again and it just felt as if it was a painful experience to watch. Do you think it was the same towards the end with Mrs Thatcher? I think that there is a limit in a democracy on how long you can and should stay. And I think that I think that Mrs. Thatcher and you know Tony Blair stayed on quite a long time too. I think if you if you're wise in politics, you know when you should go. And I think I think that was at the heart of a lot of Mrs. Thatcher's unhappiness towards towards the the, the end of her life. Now, one of my favourite sections of your book is about the Whip's office in the 1990s because this is the point at which John Major is Prime Minister, your political career is climbing upwards and you end up in this situation of trying to, first of all, help get the Maastricht Treaty through, which was one of the most controversial pieces of legislation, led to huge rebellions and a sort of collective nervous breakdown within the Conservative Parliamentary Party. And obviously, whipping has become very infamous thanks to House of Cards, both the UK and the US version and characters like the chief whip Gavin Williamson and his um, spider cronus he has on his desk. There's a sort of mystique that has developed around it. Tell us what the reality of being a whip is like. Well, the reality is, of course, that it has changed out of all recognition since those days, 25 years ago in the 90s, when I was a junior and then moderately senior government whip. And part of that change is because of social media. Not all of it, part of it is. But, you know, we did things in those days which no one would ever contemplate doing today. And that, that's change that has taken Do you mean sort of threats or accusations? Well, I mean, I, re- or? I remember seeing a very broad and brawny whip actually lift one of my colleagues off the ground who was threatening to rebel by his collar and tie. I mean, it's quite a difficult feat to achieve anyway, but I actually saw that happening. And, and, and on the other side of the house, Jack Straw recalls in his autobiography, the deputy chief whip, I think, at the time, Walter Harrison, was conducting a a toe-to-toe conversation with him about his future possible rebellious behaviour. And he suddenly found his balls were being squeezed in the Deputy Chief Whip's hands. No, you certainly can get away with that these days in Westminster. But obviously, you then became Chief Whip at a later point as well. Yes, uh, and I think that the whipping during the Maastricht Treaty, where I genuinely thought that John Major had done a brilliant job drawing out of the Master Treaty the two key things that Britain couldn't accept. The Working Time Directive. The Working Time Directive and the Economic Monetary Union. And so, so I was genuinely perplexed as to why the party was in 
uproar about it. And wiser heads than mine understood this. But of course, remember that in those days, there were only probably two or three members of the Conservative Parliamentary Party who wanted to withdraw from Europe. It wasn't, wasn't really on the agenda at that time. And that too shows both how toxic the European debate has been in the Conservative Party, brought down, after all, the last four Conservative prime ministers, but also how much the debate has changed in that time. There was an extraordinary piece by Matthew Dancona that charted this sort of rise of the idea of Brexit. And he recalls there was a fringe meeting, I think it may be the 94 Conservative Conference, where Norman Lamont, who was the former Chancellor, spoke about the first time about withdrawing. And he marks that as the moment, the idea that Brexit began. And it was obviously a long march through the rise of obviously the European Research Group and all these MPs who went on that kind of journey. But what's interesting is when you came back as Chief Whip under David Cameron's government many years later, how did you cajole people into voting for things if you can't, you know, pick them up or grab them by their private parts? Well, I think it's a combination, isn't it, of the attraction of preferment, maybe an honour. I set it out in my book, too, the sort of conversation Chief Whip might have. And I am only able to write about these things, I emphasise, because it's changed so much. But you do it partly through the inducement of preferment or with an honour or with other inducements that are to hand. And also, of course, the warning that, which is true, that, you know, I'm not elected to represent the good people of the royal town of Sutton Coalfield because of the colour of my eyes. I'm elect, they elect me because I'm a Conservative. And if I stood as the Andrew Mitchell party, i get a few votes, I think, possibly out of sentiment, but I wouldn't get elected. And part of the whip's job is to know and really understand the members of the flock, the parliamentarians they are responsible for, so that they know how to put the best possible case forward. And you know, the whip's job is is not to judge the legislation. If the prime minister and the cabinet decide something is to go through the house, the whip's job is to get it through. And if he's asked to get through, or she's asked to get through the slaughter of the firstborn bill, then they need to adduce good reasons why in your constituency, Mr. Payne, there's an awful lot of second and third borns. And if this measure goes through, they will be advantaged and they will vote for you at the next election. Now, you mentioned finally on the whipping question about social media. Do you think parties have now become much more difficult to whip than they were before? Because one thing I've been struck through political reporting is the 2019 intake of Conservative MPs, which is 137, very big intake. And obviously, many of them represent constituencies that have not been Conservative forever or for a long time before. And because so much of their career has been virtual, they've not been in Westminster, they don't seem to necessarily have that glue, that bond to the wider parliamentary Conservative Party. And I wonder how much of that's about the pandemic versus how the role of an MP has changed. Are people more independently minded, more minded towards their constituency? And does that just make whipping, combined with the fact your tactics have had to change, a much more difficult proposition? It does, but there are a number of factors there. Certainly the glue that one would expect within the parliamentary party has been weakened by the physical impact of COVID. That's certainly true. But also a lot of these people in a very big intake are local champions. They didn't necessarily expect to get in. They got in. They owe a great deal to Boris for that, actually. And they're conscious of that. him personally for a lot of them. Yes. I mean, I went and campaigned in some of the West Midlands red wall seats during the last election once I was sure everything was okay in Sutton Coalfield. And I used to say to people, are you going to vote Conservative? And they would say, no, I'm going to vote for Boris. And so, so there's no doubt whatsoever that he 
brought those the people into the party, lending us, as he eloquently put it, their, their vote. Of course, the danger for the Conservative Party is that it must keep this wide coalition together. And uh, I get very concerned that if we lose the internationalist development supporting people who brought back all those liberal seats in the West Country to the Tories and incidentally gave David Cameron his first the Conservative Party's first overall majority for 23 years. You know, we have to keep that coalition together. If we lose it in extremis, we might lose both ends, in which case we would be out of power significantly. Well, it was I looked at the list of the 33 seats that Michael Howard gained in the 2005 election for a column recently, and it's striking how many of those have started to already go. If you think of Putney, Ilford North, Enfield Northgate, all these seats, and many of them are sort of on the, the outer reaches of cities, but... Those are ones that seem to be to me where the next electoral battleground is going to go because I've written extensively about the Red War thing and I think in many respects that's quite far gone from Labour and will take it quite a long time to get back. But those middle England, middle income, middle of the road seats are going to be a big problem, I think, because when they look at the size of spending and taxation, they look at the sort of the tone and feel of this government. It's very different from the Cameron era and the sort of conservatism that you've espoused throughout your career. And you have to wonder, it's become so disparate, you know, Battersea to um, Blythe Valley. You know, is it possible, do you think, to keep those that coalition together? Well, that, that, that's exactly the issue and the dangers are, as I've said. I mean, I think that, firstly, you have written a very good book, which is essential reading if you're to try and understand how this coalition develops. But there are certain core principles which separate the Conservative Party from Labour, one of which is, you know, good and judicious tight fiscal spending, guarding people's money so that they can spend their own money and not having it all taken in tax. And and if in support of this coalition, you end up without really any real sort of guiding beacon, then any party is in very great danger. Now, you mentioned obviously liberal internationalist conservatives, which brings us on to obviously your main part of your cabinet career. When you were international development secretary, you served in David Cameron's shadow cabinet and then in government in this role as well. How important was that for the Cameron modernisation project by agreeing to the 0.7% target, keeping the Department for International Development, which you led for a number of years, which obviously have both now been jettisoned by Boris Johnson? You know, do you think that wing of conservatism you represent will sort of come back again? Well, I, I very much hope so. And if it doesn't, then the Conservative Party's DNA will have been gravely weakened. And it was, I think it's pretty clear now, it was a catastrophic error of judgment to vaporise DFID. And it will be very difficult to get that expertise back. I mean, Mrs Thatcher didn't have a DFID, but she had a silo within the Foreign Office, the Overseas ODA. Development Administration, which was a centre of expertise which could morph into DFID. That's all gone now because Boris has completely vaporised it and the expertise has walked out of the door, often to New York or to Geneva. So, you know, I certainly intend to continue to try and point out to people that DFID and the Point Seven and international development... It's not about sort of do-gooders and charity. It's about Britain's national interest because we live in a very unequal and divided world. Deep and ingrained poverty, apart from being wholly wrong when we have the ability to try and do something about it, is not in our national interest. Conflict and poverty damage us. And if you, if you, if you do the reverse and try and eliminate conflict and build prosperity, that ricochets against our standard of living and our safety here in the UK. 
arbitrary spending targets is never necessarily a good thing for getting good policy outcomes. And there have been reports constantly throughout the years of aid money being wasted in this sort of desperate aim to hit 0.7. Do you think there's consistently been much waste or is that just sort of tabloid fodder and everyone getting very wound up by a whole load of nothing? Well, many of the stories are historic. They're not recent. And actually, you know, if you look at any of the audit assessments of Whitehall, DFID was always regarded as one of the most effective spenders of money. You know, I made sure during my time that we published everything we spent. We put it online, which is part of the transparency we expect those who are in receipt of this money to get. And it's not just the money, of course. It's the coagulation of expertise and the great great British universities thinking, which led the world on many of the international development policies, which Britain developed and which were copied elsewhere. I mean, I think you have to have a budget. And the point, the thing, the beauty of the point seven was it is a budget so you can plan ahead and development is very long term. But it also reflects the state of the economy. So when the economy goes down, the money goes down as well. You know, the barbarism of the decision that was taken by Boris and Rishi is that actually it was the only cut they made and it was just 1%, 1% of the borrowing for COVID last year. Now, that is not an economic decision. You know, that's a political decision. It's not economic. Now, it would be remiss if we didn't discuss the so-called Plebgate episode. This was in September 2012 when you appointed Chief Whip in David Cameron's government. And there were allegations that said you had described police at the gate of Downing Street as plebs, a derogatory term. And um, you apologised that time but denied the use of the word pleb. And this resulted in a whole complicated series of court cases and of allegations against the police. When you look back on that, do you have many regrets about the, how that whole episode episode was handled. Oh, yes, of course, I have enormous uh, regret, not just for me, but for all the others caught up in it as well. And it was my fault that it all started. And it ended in a terrible mess because while I lost the court case, much to my amazement, obviously, nevertheless, you know, 10 police were disciplined in one way or another, several were sacked for lying, and one went to prison. So it all ended in a terrible mess. And it is it is the shortest chapter, I think, in the book, because I'm not trying to refight old battles or or relitigate the issue. Indeed, I can't. And, you know, it would not be uh, sensible for me to try to do so, given that the court case is now in the past. But what I try to do in that chapter is just to explain what it's like to be caught up in one of these massive media schools and what it does to families. And to but it felt like a maelstrom when I was reading that chapter that you've just got accusations and cause and pressure, just like a clamp coming down on you in that period. Yes. And I think, you know, the, 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 the import, I try to make the case also that the free press in Britain, a sort of a rugged, raucous, cacophonous, cynical, splenetic press is absolutely essential for our individual liberties and freedoms. And I, I think those freedoms are not maintained by politicians and ministers and judges and police and so on. They are maintained by having a free press. So I make, you know, I'm not, I'm not seeking any sympathy for that aspect of it. I've tried to explain what it's like. And for example, I saw Allegra Stratton in tears, forced outside her own home to come out and speak to the press. And I don't think that's that's right or or very nice. You know, she's a very distinguished journalist and a, and a public servant, not an elected politician. And I think that's the that's the downside of all this sort of stuff. 
We've talked about all these establishment institutions you'd encountered throughout your career, but obviously before the Plebgate episode, you'd not had much encounter with the police, I think. You had one person was jailed, many were disciplined and lost their jobs off the back of it. How did that change your view of the police? Did you have more or less faith? Do you think there needs to be some kind of fundamental change in how policing works? Well, we give the police in this country very great power. The power to take away your liberty, the power to arrest you. And it's absolutely essential that police accountability is prioritised. I do not think that is adequate in this country. Uh, I experienced the what was then called the IPCC, which was the independent complaints against the police, and I never felt they were remotely effective, although, to be fair to them, they spoke out on my case and they spoke out forcefully. So I think how you hold the police to account is incredibly important, and I think that in particular, the Metropolitan Police, which is a huge organisation. And anyone who leads the Metropolitan Police faces extraordinary challenges. And we've seen recently how great those challenges are. So I think the balance has tilted too far towards the police and away from the individual citizen. The police in this country are, after all, a a citizen police force. And I think that needs to be pushed back. And I, I would argue that the best way to do that is to try and bring outside leadership into the Metropolitan Police. I would go back to what used to happen, I think, before the war, where the chief of police in London was a senior former military officer. Uh, and so I don't think the police should lead the police in the future. And I hope very much that the Home Secretary, who I know thinks quite deeply about these things, will be looking for Cressida replacement when the time comes for her to stand down, to be someone with very strong leadership uh, DNA from outside the police. And finally, I just want to look at politics a bit more of the here and now. You've obviously, we've mentioned Boris Johnson several times in your views on him. And in many ways, you are responsible for the fact he is prime minister because those early days when he was put on the Conservative candidate list. And for listeners who can't see, Andrew just ducked his head slightly at that comment. Yes, I mean, the, the, it's true. I, I um, was responsible for him going on the candidates uh, list uh, in the teeth of John Major's and indeed many of the MEP's opposition. Because at that stage in his career, he was a journalist, he was writing for The Telegraph, and he was writing disobliging articles about how John Major wanted to, and the EU wanted to straighten out all bananas uh, and so forth. Um, so he was a contentious figure, but I thought he was a proper conservative. And the job of the candidates list was not to make windows into people's ideological souls. It was to try and see whether or not they were electable as a conservative and could then be put before constituency associations. So so he got on and, and the rest is history. On that note of action, Andrew Mitchell, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. And if you enjoyed it, then please do subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also love positive reviews as well. Under Fringe, Tales from a Reformed Establishment Lackey is now out in all good bookshops. And next week, we'll be back with our final Christmas interview special with legendary political documentary filmmaker Michael Cockrell discussing his book looking back on a lifetime of interviewing politicians. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thanks for listening and a very happy Christmas. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.